Hi, I'm Renee T, and you're listening to Episode 9 of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. And since I started with the intro Episode 0, this is really the 10th episode. Yay! (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. I also hit 5,000 followers on Twitter this week, and I've been getting a ton of positive feedback. So thanks especially to everyone who reviewed this podcast on iTunes and other places online. It really helps others find the show. Today we'll meet neuroscientist Justin Kiggins, who started out as a musician, almost became a race car engineer, but turned into a neuroscience researcher, who also definitely qualifies as a data scientist, that studies the brains of European starlings that are listening to bird songs and learning behaviors to do in response. Justin is a PhD candidate at UC San Diego, will soon be working at the famed Allen Institute for Brain Science, and has had an interesting journey to where he is today. Let's meet him now. All right. Hi, Justin. Uh, hi, Renee. <laughs> so I'll start with the question I ask everybody. Do you consider yourself to be a data scientist? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, I suppose since you invited me on, that sort of makes me a data scientist. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that a lot of, uh, you know, in academia, you know, I think a lot of times when we run into the, the phrase data science, um, people raise their eyebrows a little bit because they say, well, you know, aren't we all scientists working with data? Aren't we like by default data scientists? And so to a certain extent, having spent a lot of time working with data, um, that that gets me part of the way there. But more so, I feel like when people talk about data science, you're really talking about, you're partly talking about applying those, the, those skills to business questions often. Um, but also more specifically, there are, um, because of that, there are, sets of tools that have been developed in industry, fairly specific to industries, issues and industries, um, problems and the types of data that that is worked with. So, um, you know, the extent to which I, I know all of the ins and outs of those tools, I think might not make me as much of a data scientist as most people think about when they when they say data science. Okay, so, so. we'll come back later to what you do now. Um, but first, yeah. let's go back to your childhood. So did you like science and tech as a kid or did you start programming early or anything that would um, make somebody think that you would eventually become a data scientist? Yeah, I, so my first, my first time programming, I did have access to a computer and I still remember my, I had a teacher that, that had noted that I was good at math. So he wanted me to like write this program in basic or something. and. Um, I ended up just kind of rote copying um, just out of the back of the textbook some basic program and I had no idea what it was and I had no I, I had no understanding of it whatsoever. And what grade was that um, in? That was fifth grade uh-huh. um, and so I had that was my probably my my first <laughs> foray into programming um, but after that you know once I got into into middle school I ended up being really good at math so I you know, like skipped a grade of math in middle school. And um, when I got to high school, I started, you know, this messing around with HTML and had a little kind of little summer internship at Intel doing um, like building a little intranet website or something for a, an engineering group. Oh, wow. um, so there were these like little, you know, little things that that I kind of started doing some some web stuff on on one side and then on the other side i loved physics and and was was really good at math in high school so those were probably the the like early indicators of of where i might end up one day 
So did you take AP classes in high school? Yeah, so this was this was with the yeah the AP calculus track, the AP physics, um, all of that fun stuff. So in high school, I I had actually maxed out. I hit did because I'd skipped ahead a year, so I was doing AP. I finished up the second year of AP Calc junior year, um, and in my senior year, in I had basically decided that I wanted to be a band instructor and didn't want to have anything to do with with science or, or <laughs> engineering or anything at all. My senior year, I basically like shut down all of my advanced academic stuff because I would have had to like go to the community college or something, um, yeah. and focused almost entirely on music and um, in order to try to get into into a music program for college. Okay, so uh, where did you decide to go to college, and did you know right away that you wanted to uh, major in a music program? Yeah, so I went to, um, I was at Arizona State University um, and got into the oboe studio there. Um, and yeah, I was I was completely 100% committed to career as a, as a musician. Um, I uh, started out in, uh, as to do music education, to be a band instructor. My first week of class i actually changed majors that was my first time changing majors <laughs> in undergrad week? wow my so very what first triggered week that? Well, what triggered that i so there was uh, i tr- changed into a different program called music therapy um, which uses music as a as a therapeutic tool and i had a friend who was doing music therapy and arizona state was is one of the handful of uh universities that have music therapy programs mm-hmm. um so that was the, that was the my first triggers that i want to do i decided i wanted to do music therapy um, and that was, you know, in part due to the fascination with what, you know, how it works, you know, the, the effects that music can have on, on the body, on the psyche. Um, that's what, that's what that first, uh, that first change was. So did classes in that area start leading you towards neuroscience? Um, not really. I think what, what led me towards neuroscience then was a little bit of a frustration with, with music therapy and that it's, um, at the time, at least, I, I'm not exactly sure how things are looking now because I've been out of it for a while. But at the time, a lot of what I was being taught was didn't there wasn't much explanation as to why a certain therapy or why something worked, and I was really feeling frustrated with like not understanding the reasons that things were happening. Um, that combined with it being really hard to be a musician. I mean, I was what 18 years old and practicing like my oboe two to three hours a day and sitting there scraping and making reads two to three hours a day like the level of focus and dedication that was that was necessary for that kind of program was just not for me so by the end of that first year i basically threw my hands up and i was like this music stuff is too hard i'm gonna go do something that i am probably better at and i switched to engineering um and that was my, uh, so yeah, so I bailed into engineering, decided I was going to design. I don't think many people bail into engineering. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. So how no, was I, that taken? That was fine. I mean, luckily I was on, a, I was funded on a scholarship that it didn't really matter. Um, okay. I could, I could, I could switch. Luckily I was at a, at a very large university with, um, with a lot of room for, for flexibility. Um, so, I mean, it kind of set me back a year in, in that, you know, nothing overlapped. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a bad deal. So I switched into engineering, decided I wanted to be a, a race car designer. I loved cars and trucks uh, when I was in in high school and decided I was 
going to design race cars. So I switched into mechanical engineering, spent some time, um, you know, started learning basic engineering stuff. Um, and then there was a, there was a talk, uh, a, a seminar that had been organized. that was like music and the brain or something like this. And it was a, it was, it had been organized largely by the music therapy program. Um, but there were a couple of bioengineering professors at, at Arizona State that were involved because they were bioengineers who were interested in using and mu understanding music and um, in the context of, of motor control and, and how the brain works. And so that was my first indicator that actually there might be a different way for me to approach these like the, this interest and in how, how music and the brain interact. And so at that point, I switched into bioengineering at the end of my second year, um, which is a pretty much easier segue from mechanical. Um, and then basically spent undergrad getting involved in research projects and dealing with music and, and auditory perception. So what kind of courses were available to you um, at the high level there in the undergrad? Yeah, so a lot of the, so the courses I was, um, basically the kind of the required track was your standard set of calculus, uh, linear algebra course. Um, and then in the context of biomedical engineering, there were some courses that were dealing more with um, with more partial derivatives um, and such, you know, in the context of fluid mechanics and you know various types of, of engineering analyses, you know, analyzing um, uh, blood flow and, and transport of molecules across membranes and um, and things along those lines that were, were fairly applied versions of, of mathematical um, differential equations, basically. And was the psychology of perception or anything like that included in that? Or was it like purely a, you know, research yeah. track from the, you know, that was side? all of all of that stuff was was purely I learned purely on the pretty much purely on the research side. Um, so a lot of that was by getting involved in research projects. I did a summer um, a summer project out in um, in Boston. The NSF has these um, REU programs, this like research experience for undergraduates. Um, so I got into an REU program in Boston um, with an auditory perception. That was probably my first time really getting into programming, I would say. Like I had been doing HTML, I had been kind of messing around with websites and such up until then. That summer was when I really, that was my first time personally running um, uh, and des designing and running some you know psychology experiments. Um, some perception experiments. And that was also my first time really programming stuff up in MATLAB. So the whole experiment had to be programmed up in MATLAB and the analysis was all done in MATLAB. Um, and so that was that was definitely some on the job training, working with the senior, with the graduate students that were mentoring me um, and, and needing to get my project done um, was where I had started to really learn that kind of stuff. And what did the data look like that you were working with at that point? Yeah, that stuff was, so that data was a, there were kind of two data sets. One was, so what we were doing is we were, um, the, the lab was interested in the, the influence of echoes on our ability to localize sound. So the two sides of that project was, um, I was basically dealing with stuff that other people had written in order to capture um, the echoic environment of a room. Um, so what that largely consisted of was me setting up this little 
this little uh, mannequin, uh, this little dummy with um, with microphones in its ears, hmm. um, and then moving a speaker around a room and playing uh, this just white noise, this sound, um, in order to capture what all the echoes uh, did to that sound by the time it got to to the ear. Um, wow. And then what's what's cool with that is you can take that transformation that it does with the white noise then you can take any new stimulus any new sound that you've recorded do that convolution again and if you play that back in phones it now sounds like you're sitting in that room and whatever audio was played came from that location in the room that's um, really interesting so that was hard to imagine that white noise has a very clear echo i mean i guess a computer put, would pick it up but it would just sound like more white noise you wouldn't hear you know necessarily exactly, like but, the, the start and stop of the sound exactly but because you can because you can analyze this in the computer what you can look for is the you know because white noise is is completely flat and is has no regularities in it but that transformation between the echoes and the transformation that the, that the dummy the the mannequin's ears made um is is uh, a um, you know those regularities can be picked up, and so you can you can reverse and and reverse out the math and in order to identify what that um, what that matrix matrix is that does that transformation. So, did you go uh, right into grad school out of undergrad? Uh, I actually took a. I did not. I um, I was going to, and my wife got a Fulbright to Egypt. And so I had already been accepted into into grad school. And so I took a year, I deferred for a year and got to go to Egypt and do whatever I wanted to out there. Nice. Um, yeah. So did you collect data while you were there? <laughs> no, I actually, so what I did while I was there is I, I actually got involved when I was in, so in undergrad, I was involved in organizing a, um, I started a nonprofit with some friends. Um, so I had some friends that were very active in refugee resettlement. Um, and I helped them out with website stuff and getting technical things set up. And one of the projects we had done in undergrad in Arizona was um, mapping. We, had, we basically had volunteers that worked with newly resettled refugees to kind of help them get a lay of the, a lay of the land. And so we put together a map of resources in the Phoenix area um, to help our volunteers and the and the refugees kind of find critical services. Um, and so that was sort of my first data science product, um, you know, because we were basically taking data that we had compiled and, and pushing it into an online uh, forum for people to use. Yeah. Um, but I had so I had worked with them and then I got out to Egypt and this was a little bit after the then I want to say um, there was a very violent election in Kenya and a group called Ushahidi had started a system for reporting election violence with SMS reporting um, so you could send a text message and of uh, reporting violence in your location and then volunteers would would kind of process that and put it on a map by the time I got to Egypt they had um, this was an open platform. And so I worked with, I coordinated between some uh, uh, women's organizations in Egypt and my friends out in the States who had done, um, who had done mapping stuff to, in order to put together a, 
uh, service where women in Egypt would be able to report uh, sexual harassment on the street um, using the Ushahidi platform. And it was a big, big deal at the time, especially because when I when I first got there to Egypt, uh, Suzanne Mubarak had just, um, who was who was Mubarak's wife, had just made a big statement about how there is no um, there is no sexual harassment on the streets in Egypt, yeah. um, and a lot of these women's organizations were were you know protesting. They had just released this big uh, survey um, highlighting that this was the the fact, and so this was meant to be a uh, you know kind of a call to kind of give voice to to um, to give voice to those experiences in a in a digital way. Um, so that organization um, is actually now they're doing awesome. It's completely Egyptian run now. So that's Harass Map is the is the organization and, and they're doing super cool things in Egypt since then. Wow, that's neat. I'll have to link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what did you do when you got back from Egypt? Uh, got back from Egypt and and started into my PhD. So I uh, joined a lab um, where we uh, look at auditory perception in European starlings. Um, so European starlings are birds that um, not only learn their song, they don't only learn how to how to sing their song, but they can also use listen to each other and can recognize each other according to the songs that they sing. Um, and are, are so, these, so you said European starlings, but are these the same starlings yeah. that we're used to here in America that, you know, are considered invasive and create big flocks yep. and noise and eat yeah. stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yep, so did ones. they study yeah. them just because they were, um, you know, readily available to study? What was the reason of choosing starlings? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a part, you know, that, that certainly helps things. Um, and, uh, but also they're they're very smart birds. Um, they're very um, so they sing these songs that um, that can last that are very long, um, and so and they continue to incorporate new elements into their songs throughout adulthood. Um, and they have and because of this rich repertoire, one of the things that my you know my advisor had done a few years prior was actually to show that they rely on you know that on on the sequencing and that there's they can identify. Um, some aspects of uh, recursive structures in syntax. Um, and so basically what we're able to do with the starlings is that we can train them up um, to uh, discriminate between different things. So we can uh, train them so that when they uh, when they want a little bit of food, they peck on a, on a port, um, they'll hear a song, and then they have to make a decision whether to peck left or peck right in order to get the food. Um, and by doing this, just through trial and error, they can learn uh, various associations. So we can do this both to try to kind of do an experimental psychology approach and understand what it is they can and can do. Um, once we train them up on things, we can then you know, present new stimuli and see how they categorize them in order to kind of, you know, in, the, in kind of a data science framework as a, as a validation cross set, or if you've you know, if you've trained a clustering algorithm on on one particular set of data, and then you provide novel elements to it, you know, how do you how, what what does it do? Um, and so we can we can kind of do do similar things with the with the starlings and and probe them in similar ways. So you're playing a song, and they have to decide whether that song means left or right button. Yep, exactly. And then you can use a bunch of different songs exactly. to figure out what can they distinguish between. 
Yeah. So, so my, so for example, my project specifically, I have, uh, I've trained starlings to respond based on the sequence that they hear. So if they, um, so I take little excerpts of a different starling song. Um, you can kind of think of these as like words maybe. Um, so these are little elements. And if they hear one element by itself, that wouldn't give them any information. So if they hear element A, that doesn't give them any information. If they hear AB, then that gives them a little bit of information they should go left. If they hear ABC, that gives them a little bit more information that they should go left. If they hear BA, that means they should go right. Um, so so by by manipulating these and manipulating these contingencies, I can train them that this is, you know, that these are the that that A to B to C means that you should probably go right. C to B to A means you should probably go left. And how long does it take um, to train them? It depends on the it depends on the task. So that's um, you know sometimes the the difficulty in training is just figuring out how to train them exactly. Um, you know if you look at at uh, at I feel like some of the machine learning people are starting to do this kind of stuff too. So like the you know sometimes there is uh, there's shaping procedures that we have to do in order to like you know where you start them out with a fairly easy and then you get it more and more and more difficult. Um, and so it depends. So they'll learn it in a couple of days. Some tasks could take them a little bit longer. Okay. So, yeah. Well, since we're talking about this and this is a audio podcast, let's see if we can <laughs> listen to some Starling songs. So, um, yeah. Okay. So if you watch this on YouTube at this point in the recording, because of the way I had my virtual audio cable set up, I could hear the bird songs and Justin couldn't, and it wasn't on the YouTube video. <laughs> so I'm going to insert some songs that he sent me here. Um, but first let's have him explain what we're about to hear. And then we'll jump back into the interview. One of the things you're going to hear is that they, um, that there are, are repeating elements and they're incredibly complex songs. So there's a lot of high frequencies, a lot of low frequencies. There's these clicky sounds that um, that that sound uh, kind of weird and scratchy, um, but importantly, um, the the sounds that you hear in the beginning of the song are different than the sounds that you hear in the back, um, and they tend to repeat these like these complex chunks over and over again, uh, and so those those kinds of complex chunks are these are these key elements that um, that, that rely on in in kind of constructing new songs for them. Justin sent me a full clip of about a minute of the Starling singing straight through. So if you're interested in hearing that, you can go to the show notes for this episode on the becomingadatascientist.com blog. But for the audio, I just clipped in little bits and pieces. So you have about 20 seconds of the Starling song now, and then we'll get back to the interview. And it's interesting to me that you are researching what the starlings are listening to and responding to, because I was thinking that you were going to be training the starlings to produce a certain song. So um, yeah. did you go in that direction because it's easier to study because it's like an A-B test instead of trying to get this complex amount of information of what song the bird produced? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, so there is a very, there's a lot of uh, researchers uh, that study um, that study vocal production in birds, um, mostly using zebra finches. 
Um, and zebra finches are, are very different than starlings in that zebra finches learn a song when they're young. Um, and it's a fairly short, I mean, it's complex in terms of, of a lot of, you know, kind of motor behaviors generally, but it's, it's fairly short. It's maybe a second or two seconds, um, uh, a couple seconds long. And once they have learned it, they sing the exact same song for the rest of their life. Um, so there's a little bit, I mean, there's like, there's a little bit of degradation, but you have to do like spectral analyses to identify it, but there's a little bit of degradation that they can do through their lives. Um, that is very nice though, for studying the motor side of things, because basically you're kind of back down to an AB test. So if you manipulate something, so if you lesion a part of the brain and there's no effect of the song on the song, uh, but if you lesion a different part of the brain and there is an effect on the song, it's very, because they sing the exact same song every single time, it's really easy to characterize that it's different, that it's changed, and that whatever you did caused an effect. Um, that would be much harder, although not impossible, but much harder to do with starlings because they sing such complex songs. So if they start seeing something different, is that simply because of something that you did? Or is that because um, they've pulled up a new element from their memory that they've um, that you've simply never observed before. Um, so on the perception side, which is, you know, it, it's it's also a common, it's also the fact that, you know, we're looking at and interested in different brain regions that we're looking at, we're dealing with with largely perceptual stuff and asking, you know, what, how is it that a bunch of cells in the brain are going to represent, um, uh, represent something, something meaningful for the animal? Um, and in many respects, that's actually the part of the work that gets a little bit more into the data science stuff, um, because that's the that's the work. You know, actually analyzing um, what the brain is doing is is really where we start start leveraging um, some of the machine learning and um, and some of the other kind of data that are out there. Okay. So what kind of data do you collect in your experiments where the birds are responding to the sound? Are you looking at response times or of course, which button they press, but what, what else do you collect? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, um, so yeah, as far as the, as the animal's behavior, it's largely what their, what their response is with the, and what the response time is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives us, that gives us some, uh, important, uh, information. Um, the other things that we record is we record, um, electrical signals from inside of their brains. So we can put, um, we can put silicon, um, silicon electrodes into their brains where we have basically 32 um, electrical sites that are, are um, they can pick up local electrical activity. And by local el- electrical activity, I mean these sites are 177 square microns in diameter um, so we can pick up, uh, so any given site is going to be able to pick up from uh, electrical activity within uh, tens to hundreds of microns. Um, so with that, that, those electrical signals, if, if, that, if that recording site is nearby um, a neuron um, that is spiking and is active, when that neuron is active, it's going to send an electrical pulse off uh, down its axon to somewhere else in the brain to wherever it's connected. Um, what's nice for us is that that, uh, that electrical pulse is very stereotyped. So, um, for this, um, and where my electrode is every single time this, this cell spikes, 
I'm going to get a very similar uh, shape, a very similar trace on my electrode. Um, and what we're particularly interested in is the times that these events are, are happening. And so we can um, take, that, take that continuous electrical signal and basically do a detection algorithm and, and go through and detect all of these spiking events. And then we can use the shape of those events uh, in order to cluster and identify different cells. Because a cell that's close is going to have a different waveform than a cell that's far away. Um, and, and so we can do some, uh, some different, uh, different clustering approaches in order to, to infer what the uh, set of neurons is that we're observing. And how granular is that setup um, considered? You know, are you really capturing like most of what you would see in a bird's brain, or is it really like ideally you would love to have a lot more electrodes in there? Ideally, we would love to have a lot more electrodes. I mean, we've got you know, I mean, we're talking. Uh, I mean, I, I should know this number, but <laughs> there's probably in a, in the region that I'm interested in, there's probably hundreds of thousands of cells. And at any given time, I can probably get a couple dozen. Um, so, so we're definitely way undersampling the the entire population. Um, and yet, even with that undersampling, though, we can we can see we can see trends that um, that that emerge. Um, but there are some there. Are, I think one of the big the big open questions is what the coordinated activity of cells do so a lot of times with these experiments um we can and this is true true of a lot of this kind of neuroscience is that we we can observe um you know i observe a set of cells on one day and then a different set of cells on a different just get collapsed into the same data set for the analysis um but there's actually a lot of indicators that the joint activity and the activity, the simultaneous activity between cells matters a lot. Um, so there's there's some particular questions out there um, that would necessitate larger data sets and a bigger un and um, and there's different ways of doing that. Some of those are constrained by um, by various aspects of the technology. Um, there are technological constraints in terms of the density of electrodes. Um, there's also other types of recording where you can um, take advantage of, um, of fluorescent indicators and actually film uh, under a microscope, uh, film neurons that, that have, been, um, have been genetically modified in order to, uh, to light up when they spike. Oh wow, uh, down to the cellular level, you'd be able to see that? Yeah, down to the cellular level, you can you can see that, um, and then you can and then you can actually take a video of a bunch of these cells, um, and you can and you can see each one uh, light up when it's um, when it uh, when it spikes, um, and so those those technologies are available in in um, yeah the, the details of when of when one technology is possible over the other varies, but we're basically kind of at this point where I mean. When I came into my when I came into my lab, the very the very first set of recordings that I was doing, um, I could basically record one cell at a time with just a single electrode with a single site. And just in the in this lab, just in the um, the few years that I've been here, um, we're already up to thirty two uh, sites. There are um, off the shelf. You can get um, you can get 
electrodes that are pushing 64 to 128 channels. Um, and then there are um, kind of some electrodes that are in development that are still in kind of engineering labs that aren't aren't ready for a commercial purchase yet that are, are pushing up into a thousand sites. Um, and so we're we're getting to the point that these these data sets are getting are getting much bigger and are going to become become more of a challenge for um, for analysis. Kind of the the typical set of tools that that most uh, most neuroscientists have been using in terms of just taking these taking these big data sets and loading them up into um, into into MATLAB or, or Python um, are is <laughs> pretty soon. Um, and we're say, gonna have say to that again. I think your audio more. cut out after loading into Python. Yeah, so a lot of the, the the trend for loading these data sets just into into a NumPy array in Python or just loading it all up into an array in MATLAB, um, the data sets are just going to get too big to be able to do any analysis like that. Um, and already some labs are are, are pushing this. Um, and so there's some, there's some cool tools that are getting developed out there, uh, very specifically for dealing with Spark. Uh, well, using Spark in order to analyze um, some of the data that we deal with. Uh, that's a platform by uh, Jeremy Freeman, um, and it's called Thunder. Um, and and yeah, so there's a couple other, some people that are starting to look to, to the tools that have been getting developed, you know, in the data science world and in the um, in industry um, to say, how can we start to use use these tools that in, in neuroscience for the problems that that we're coming upon um, in a new way. So up until those problems started emerging, what were the main tools that you used? And are there Python packages made specifically for this type of analysis? Yeah, there's some, you know, so I relied a lot, you know, I initially was trained up on MATLAB. Um, and I think that that's still probably where most people are is in is in MATLAB. Um, and then there are also some, but then a few years ago, I switched over to, to using Python exclusively. Um, almost exclusively, and um, and yeah, and there's some very good there's some very good platform things out there in 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 Python. So there are some, I was talking about there's a package out there called Phi um, that that does some of this clustering very specifically for uh, for neuronal data, um, and there are um, but. Mostly, we kind of just use NumPy arrays and um, and loading up our our time series into into NumPy. Um, I've started relying a lot more on pandas the past couple of years. I like uh, I really like the the um, it's a very useful uh, a, a very useful set of uh, ways to represent uh, represent data once we're I guess. We're, we kind of deal with two kinds of data. So basically, if you imagine like the trials that I was talking about, so an animal doing trials, and I've got trial data, um, that's the kind of data that works really, really well in a, in a pandas array. When we're talking about um, you know these these recordings where we have these continuous waveforms across multiple channels, um, that's a little bit yeah less. Pandas is a little bit less useful there. Um, but once I've kind of transformed that and extracted the key pieces of information I want out of that and, and kind of summarize that in a nice way, dropping stuff into a pandas data frame um, is is has kind of been my 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 go to for for a few months or years now, somewhere in there. So um, 
this this is a very specific st- set of skills and data and research that you're doing, and I guess a lot of PhD programs tend to be like that. Um, how transferable are these skills, and what kind of sense do you get in terms of do people usually go stay in academia and research or go into industry after doing this type of research? Yeah, so I think that the yeah, I think that a lot of times, I mean, so a lot of the kind of your your classic set, uh, in some respects, the skills are highly specific, but in some some respects, they're very broad. Um, so the challenges of cluster of doing regressions, um, you know, kind of these approaches are a lot of what we use to try to understand the data that we're dealing with. And so I think that as long as one is doing a PhD and and can see, can see in some respect, um, I actually think it's it's not too hard to to translate these these things into new analyses. So you know, I was basically able to take these exact same uh, same sets of skills, and you know, I was working with a, a startup doing some market analysis, and so I was able to take a survey that they had done, and you know, kind of take the same sets of approaches to try to understand that survey data and. Um, I've, you know, messed around with my own kind of pet data sets that I've, I've found online and that I've scraped off of websites and such. And, um, and it's, and, and so I think in some respects, as long as you're, as long as you, as you learn stuff broadly and you're not just, um, you're not just applying the function that somebody handed to you, uh, to, um, to do your analysis, as long as you're thinking critically about, about why you're doing what you're doing and understanding what it's, what it's doing. Um, I actually think that it's the the skills are are more transferable than than one might expect. And you, you know, you've done a lot of math. You mentioned that you were good at math since you were young. Um, what advice do you have for people that want to go into this field? Also, well, first, how would you define your field? Is yeah. this cognitive? I mean, com- computational <laughs> neuroscience? Yeah, I would say computational systems neuroscience. Computational, computational neuroscience. There's a little bit of assumption that you're doing theoretical work, that you're basically uh-huh. developing and, um, and and purely working with equations. Um, but yeah, this would be this would be on the on the kind of computational and systems neuroscience side of things. Okay. Um, Experimental. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Experimentally driven. Exactly. Yeah. So um, what, what, what advice do you question? have for people that want to learn the, those things? Like say somebody's an undergrad now and they're interested in going into this field. I think the key thing at this point is the, the questions are a matter of, of getting experience um, and getting involved in research projects. Um, and for me, for this and, and you know, a lot of the data science you know, skills that I've developed is largely out of interest. Um, you know, I... There are, to a certain extent, you know, you need classes, and and it's worth it's worth noting when there are specific classes that will help you to to meet a need. But I've always been very um, very driven by my immediate needs. That I'll learn some, you know, if I have a, a problem that's in front of me, then I'll figure out what I need to learn in order to solve that problem. And that's been a, a really that's been a very effective way for me of of doing stuff. I I have a really I, I have a really hard time getting the motivation to do an analysis on a data set like I don't know I, the iris data set or something um, you know like to just do an analysis on a data set because because a, a professor said that I should do this analysis on this data set 
um, I, I find I find it's really hard for me to be self-motivated in that framework. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. And but, those data sets tend to be so clean, it's not realistic anyway. So, you know, with the data exactly. science learning club data, I actually worked with bird data, <laughs> funny enough, uh -huh. um, of migration. Uh, and the Cornell okay, yeah. Ornithology, they have an eBird data set where they take all these uh -huh. sightings of birds and, and you can get a lot of data from that. So what are your what are some of your um, favorite data sets? You mentioned you scraped some. So what kind of data do you usually play around with? Yeah, so I've got, so my wife is a, my wife is a birth doula. And oh, wow. and we were we we are recognizing that um, we were recognizing we realized that that um, what birth doulas charge varies a lot depending on where they are. Mm -hmm. So um, here in Southern California, they get paid better than they do in um, Northern Arizona, for example. Um, and so this got me curious whether whether I whether whether there was anything out there about this. And so I actually. I don't have the, I've been, this is something, I've been waiting until I'm actually done with my PhD in order to, to really flesh this out and, and write up a blog post on it. Um, but I, but I, yeah, so like a year ago or so, I downloaded, I, I went to, found this website that was basically a bunch of reviews of doulas and doulas maintain profiles. Um, and so I went and, and scraped a bunch of profiles off of there and, um, dropped it into this big ugly JSON file and then went through and cleaned it up into a nice pandas data frame that I could could start analyzing and looking at um, looking at um, both you know to what extent does uh, does a state uh, predict uh, what a doula is going to charge or is it are there kind of I've got a little bit there's a little bit of indication that there might be kind of clusters of styles of doulas um, so it's kind of a fun data set that, that nobody else has, um, at least not until I'm done with it. And when I'm done with it, I'll probably push the data out too. Um, but, but yeah, I, having an interesting question, which is like, you know, determining what these, what doulas are charging, mm -hmm. um, and, and seeking out that saying like, okay, where can I get this data? You know, where is it? Um, and, and is there something interesting that I can find from this? I feel like a lot of the um, a lot of the sports people have been doing this for a while with with a lot of the um, the the fantasy sports stuff, right? Where you where you've got some goal to put together your your particular um, your particular roster, and so you go and, and scrape the stats from some uh, from some website in order to get the stuff that that matters to you to to solve your problem that's in front of you. Uh -oh. yeah, and this is definitely something we've heard as a recurring theme on the podcast that so many data scientists just you learn what you need to learn in order to answer a certain question you problem solve on the fly um, you know you have to yeah. be creative and I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not just learning the tools and and certain pieces of software or approaches um, it's kind of a an all over like MacGyver of data <laughs> being able to <laughs> exactly. pack things together from whatever you could find um, and it's very problem driven problem solving driven yeah exactly yeah and that's and that's exactly what i've you know what's been what's been so motivating for me in order to to learn these things is that is that problem solving yeah so you mentioned that um when you finish your phd so when is that going to be and what are your plan next plans yeah so that should be here in the next uh in the next couple months um oh, nice. the the yeah no i'm super excited um and then i've got i'm uh heading up to the allen institute in seattle and what is that? Um, and so that, 
The Allen Institute is a is a is a neuroscience research institute. They're a little bit different than most. So most neuroscience research institutes are organized a little bit more similar to academia in that they are structured that they have a bunch of small groups that are doing research, um, largely kind of independently. Uh, the Allen Institute is a little bit more like it's almost like they're a nonprofit biotechnology company, in that their main goal is basically to produce very large data sets um, for other neuroscientists to use. So for example, they have these uh, very large data sets of gene expression in the mouse brain. So mm -hmm. for dozens and dozens of genes, they've gone through and, um, and uh, characterized uh, throughout many, many mice where in, the, in their brains these genes are, um, are being expressed. And this basically is a project like this is basically this like technical tour. It requires a lot of people to uh, to do the basic biology to make this happen. Um, it's a technical tour de force because you have to save all this data and you have to get your pipe your data production set up so that everything's co-registered appropriately. Um, but they have the resources and they're dedicated to doing this. Um, so the project that I'm going to be working on, I'm on kind of their their sort of their R&D side, which is a little bit more similar to a traditional academic lab. Um, but we're going to be doing, um, they've got a, a new project where I'd basically be working on kind of similar questions and similar problems as I am now. Like basically, if I have large, kind of the exact si kinds of questions you're asking about when you have very large, if you, uh, large data sets of, of individual neurons um, that are, are active, um, how do we characterize this? How does this, uh, you know, how can we get something interesting out of this? Um, but also all done with an eye towards scaling this up to be a very large project. So we'd have our kind of fairly small, relatively small, it would be much more similar to a typical research lab. Um, but with everything done, you know, in a, in a typical research lab, you know, I can, I can hack something together and, and hack some code together um, that nobody else is ever going to touch, um, and and that's kind of the de facto standard. Um, and I don't really have to think about whether it will work, um, you know, it, whether it will scale, whether it will do this or that. As long as I can get it to work for my stuff, that's good enough. And then, and then you go on to the next thing. Um, but one thing I'm really excited about at the Allen Institute is that um, that the the work will be done. Uh, largely to with the goal of scaling this up to build a very large data product that um, that can be useful much more broadly. And how did you get that position? You know, do they come to the different colleges and recruit people, or did you seek them out? And yeah. what was that interview process like? Yeah, that was um, so the Allen Institute actually um, the Allen Institute. I was uh, poking around on their website and <laughs> and um, submitted the um, I started the app application um, and the um, the hiring manager reached out to me um, and uh, where you know by virtue of it being academia and and my the st stuff that I do is very similar um, we uh, we had already known each other um, so he and I, I didn't even realize small that he world. was the one who was doing the hiring yeah no it's one of these small world things right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he, he reached out to me and, um, and I went up and interviewed and the interview was much more similar to, was a pretty academic interview in that I went up, I gave a talk, I uh, 
basically spent a whole day um, interacting with the other people in the lab, uh, chatting with them about what they were doing, um, you know, having a nice conversations about about interesting questions and, and interesting places for the science to go. Um, so. Well, that's great. Okay, well, I think yeah. um, it's about time to wrap up. Do you have any last advice or resources or anything that you want to point people to that want to become a data scientist? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that, you know, one of my, yeah, I don't have any particular, particular resources. I mean, I think the, the I think one of the big things for me has largely been Twitter, um, and, and interacting with Twitter and following, uh, some of the, the right people on Twitter. I mean, I think that, I mean, you're obviously yeah. a, a key node in the, in the data science world on Twitter. Thank you. And everybody that I've found for the podcast so far, I met on Twitter. So yeah, um, yeah. Twitter is definitely a good resource for learning data science. I think that that's really been, and I think that that's been the big thing for the, the big resource for me to figure out what what's data doing that academia is not. You know, what can I maybe do better and and pull into my own into my own daily work here that that will both make me a little bit more efficient with what I'm doing, but also kind of give me that set of skills that. Um, that that industry and uh, and people are going to be looking for um, if I go on the data science job market. So. Yeah. So it sounds like so far your advice was mostly go out there and get experience, and then also connect with people on Twitter. Yep. All right. Sounds absolutely. Good. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today, Justin. Um, this was awesome. a great interview, and a lot of people are going to get a lot from it. And I'm so glad to finally have had a neuroscientist on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Renee. <laughs> so thank you so much for um, agreeing to talk with us, and, and this was great. Thank you. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. And that was Justin Kiggins, and I forgot to ask him to tell us where we could find him online, but he's on Twitter at Neuromusic, and you can also find him on justinkiggins.com. And of course, I'll also put all of these links in the show notes on the blog. So this week, I want to do something a little different with the learning activity. So instead of doing machine learning or anything like that, like we've been doing, I want everybody to go look at data science job postings. Now you'll notice some of them are looking for unicorns and they want people to have every possible skill that a data scientist could have, which is very unrealistic. Um, but you know, don't be discouraged to apply for a posting where you don't have every single skill on the list. As long as you have the key skills, you know, give it a go. But what I want you to do for this learning activity is just read a bunch of postings, see what's out there um, either under data scientist or under related um, job titles for a field that you're interested in. Um, there could be a ton of different names for data scientists, like Justin is a computational systems neuroscientist. So think about the type of um, industry that you want to go into and search around and find out what the data scientists are called in that industry. And um, Find postings that have skills that overlap with your skills or skills that you want to learn and just kind of create a, a goal job posting of what your ideal job would be and figure out what skills you need that you don't yet have um, in order to get that job. So we'll kind of give you a narrower scope of what to study instead of just trying to study everything. 
um, this ideal job posting can become a bit of a guide in terms of the type of things that you want to learn. So I found a, a lot of people that are trying to become data scientists um, are overwhelmed by just the vast amount of topics that you can learn. I mean, there's really a lot under the data science umbrella. Um, but hopefully um, by doing this exercise, you'll get a better, crisper picture of where you're trying to go and um, what you need to learn to get there. And I think it will help guide your self-learning. Um, so I think it's, it's a worthwhile exercise to really spend some time on um, instead of actually doing any coding or um, data work this week. And of course, if that doesn't take you long, or if you're already in a job that you like, um, you're not trying to get a new position right now, then um, just go back and look at the learning activities. Not everyone has done all of them, so you know now's a chance to use as a catch-up week also. Or remember there was a past activity for learning um, some math concepts. So now's also a good time to go back and spend some time learning some statistics or linear algebra um, if you didn't do anything during that two-week period on the math topic. So anyway, um, hopefully this is a, a good task and you guys find it worthwhile. Um, I'll put it on the Learning Club website at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. And of course, I always like feedback there about the, the different um, learning activities and whether you learn from them and what resources you would have liked to have before diving in. Um, anything you found helpful while learning yourself, please post it there. So part of the reason that I thought of this task for this episode is that I started yet another website for my um, whole universe of becoming a data scientist websites that I've been building, um, in addition to becoming a data scientist and datasciguide.com. Um, so this one is called jobsfornewdatascientist.com. So I saw a lot of people saying that it's hard to find, you know, what I guess you would call entry-level data science jobs, though I'm not that sure there is such thing as entry-level, um, but, you know, maybe a junior data scientist posting or um, an advanced data analyst posting or something like that. So if you have a company that's looking for a data scientist that, you know, is either right out of school or maybe has professional experience in other areas um, but has not worked professionally as a data scientist by title yet, um, or just anyone that needs less than three years of work experience on the specific skill set you're looking for, um, please post it on jobsfornewdatascientist.com. And I have a discount up there for the first, um, probably the first couple months of posting so I can get it going. Um, I've been trying to reach out to some different companies that have data science job postings out there. I've put a few up myself just to get it started. So please go check those out and um, you know, click through and read them if it's something that you're interested in. If, if you know, if your company is hiring or you know of a company that's hiring, please point them in my direction. They can ask me any questions. Um, you can find me on Twitter at becomingdatasci or contact me. There's actually a Twitter handle just for that website that I started called um, New Data Side Jobs. Um, so there's several ways to contact me either through Twitter or through my blog and hopefully I'll put a blog post up about it soon. But it's just getting started. So, you know, follow me at um, New Data Side Jobs on Twitter, just so I can show that there's interest and companies that, you know, aren't familiar with the site because it's new will be aware that at least there is kind of a built-in follower base that's waiting for these great data science jobs that they have to post. So whether you're on the receiving end and you want to look for jobs to apply to, or you're have jobs available to post, just go to 
jobsfornewdatascientists.com and check it out and give me any feedback that you um, have about the website itself. Um, I clearly has, ha still have some work to do on it, but it's ready to go. The posts are up there. You can see how it works and you can apply for jobs that are up there now. And it also backfills with jobs from indeed.com. So the search doesn't always work directly with the Indeed postings yet. The keywords do, but not all the filters. Um, but, you know, on at times when there aren't that many native postings up there yet, you can still get to the Indeed job postings. So anyway, I'm kind of rambling on about it, but it's a new project I started, yet another one. Um, and hopefully it will help all of you that are becoming a data scientist um, apply for jobs when you're ready to start getting out there on the job market. So it might help with your learning activity this week, or it might help you get a job, but please check it out and give me any feedback. So as you have heard since episode seven, the Becoming a Data Scientist blog and Data Science Learning Club are now sponsored by DataCamp. DataCamp is a site with interactive R and now Python classes that have short videos that introduce each topic starting at an introductory level. And then you get to try it out yourself in an interactive coding interface. On my data science learning directory website, DataSciGuide, DataCamp is the highest rated course for beginners. It has six reviews and they're all five stars. And especially for listeners of this podcast that become members of the Data Science Learning Club, DataCamp has offered a discount on your first month. So go ahead and check out their free content, and when you're ready to dive into the content that requires a paid membership, go to the Learning Club forums at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club and look for the forum called DataCamp discount link. If you click there and you're signed in, you'll see a coupon that will give you your first month, which is normally $25, for only $9. After that, you could continue month to month for $25 a month, or you can sign up for a whole year for just $250, which comes out to just over $20 a month. That is a great price for the excellent content that DataCamp has. They have a whole bunch of courses in R. They're starting to flesh out their Python content. So go to datacamp.com to check them out. And don't forget to get your discount in the Data Science Learning Club forums. So thanks so much for to DataCamp for supporting the site. And thank you for listening to 10 episodes of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. And here's to many more.